You know, when, when I was growing up, the big celebrations at our home, the big meals and feasts that we have were main, mainly three of them, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. So I knew that three times a year we'd be eating well. Now the rest of the year is kind of sketchy, but those three days, those three events were always good eating at, at my house. And the meal was always central to those holidays, and, and the preparations would begin uh, days and sometimes weeks ahead of time. You know, it'd be multiple trips to the store, and, and you knew something good was coming when, when the fridge was getting full, stuff would be stacked on the counter, y you knew a feast was coming. And even in our home now, those are the three times a year where we go all out and make a feast to celebrate those holidays. You know, when I was a kid, my mom had the set of good silverware and good plates that only came out at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and holiday. And they were like in this hutch thing. And, and whenever, you know... When we got old enough, it was our job to pull out the good silverware and we'd lay it on the table and mom wanted it set just so. And then all those preparations would be, would be well worth it because then the meal would commence and we would enjoy my mom's home cooking. And then much to my mom's chagrin and just horror, my dad after these meals, because we would set a, a cloth tablecloth out, my dad would uh, get out and he would vacuum the tablecloth while it was still on the table. And my mom was just horrified. But he'd get out the little handheld buster, dust buster, pick up the crumbs. In his mind, it was, it was a win. My mom couldn't believe it that he would do that. You know, this morning I want to talk about a different feast, a different meal called Passover. We're going to be in, in Luke chapter 22 this morning, so if you brought a Bible or have your app, locate Luke 22. And for a Jewish family back in Jesus' day, they also had three major feasts and festivals that everybody would gather for. And they were actually required that you celebrate these in the city of Jerusalem. And they were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And required by, by their religious law, all men and their families would have to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and celebrate those festivals. You know, this morning we kick off our Easter series from Luke entitled, uh, Broken, Preparing for Easter. And each week we're going to look at a different aspect of Jesus. And, and today is all about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And we're going to dive into the last few chapters and get a close look at who he is, what he's all about, what he came to accomplish, and ultimately, why does it matter today? And the highlight of the series I'm looking forward to is Palm Sunday on April 2nd, because that's the day that our high school students are going to lead the entire worship. They're going to do the worship. They're going to, a few of them are going to preach. They'll do the communion meditations. So I hope you can plan to be here on Palm Sunday and just encourage our, our high school youth. Well, as you open up to Luke, let me share just why I love Luke's gospel. Luke was unique because he wrote his gospels to both non-Jewish and Jewish people. He had that specific audience in mind. He wanted to show all people that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That he was the one that the Old Testament had prophesied about. And here is Jesus in the flesh. And he is saying that he is the Christ that everybody's been waiting for. 
And he shows throughout his gospel that Jesus is this messianic king. And as such, he fulfills all of the Old Testament, especially the promises of everlasting salvation. And that fulfillment, Luke points out, reaches its, its ultimate mission in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that last reason is really why we're going to focus in Luke's gospel this, this Easter season. Because it points us not only to the Messiah, but what his death and resurrection means for us today. Now Luke 22 takes place around the feast of the Passover. And the Passover was a, a major feast for Israel because it, it celebrated and commemorated the deliverance of Egypt from the nation of Israel. So it was a time for both remembering and rejoicing. This is a, a week of their celebration where literally thousands and thousands of pilgrims would, would come in and celebrate and gather in and around Jerusalem. Now, now because it was kind of focused on their history and their deliverance from an, an oppressive nation, Passover had a lot of political kind of overtones. I mean, it celebrated the overthrow of a country. It celebrated the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt and their, really their beginnings as a nation themselves. And that made the Roman ruling government of Jesus' day a, a little nervous. Because if there was ever going to be uh, a coup attempt and an overthrow of their government, Passover would probably be the time to do it. Because everybody was already together in Jerusalem. There's already a political buzz in the air. And there was already some angst towards Rome, who was the ruling government of Israel in that day. So it was making Rome nervous, and it was also making the religious leaders nervous. But beyond the political buzz, there was a lot of spiritual underpinnings and foundation as well. Because Passover, historically, was about blood and death. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. It, it was celebrating, if you remember the story of Exodus, when Israel finally left Egypt and the, the Exodus, the departure, took place, it happened when the death of the firstborn in Egypt took place. The angel of death goes, goes over this land, and the people with um, blood on their door frames, lamb's blood on their door frames, the angel of death passed over. And that's where, where the name comes from. It literally passed over their house and would enter into the homes without the blood. And the firstborn, from animals to all the way up to Pharaoh's household, the firstborn died. So why, why the blood? Why, why the blood of a lamb? Well, God set that as the price, the cost of the sins of the people. So enter Jesus in his day, and Jesus uses the Passover meal to tie all of history together. Because like, like, like a good uh, Jewish man, he is celebrating it as required by the law. So he, he looks to the past and he brings it into the present. Because the Passover ties us to the past, it points us towards the future, and it grounds us in the present. And Jesus uses that, that Passover meal to, as a visual illustration about himself. 
He uses it to describe who he was as Messiah. He, he uses it to describe his love for humanity. And he uses it to, to describe and depict our hope for the future. So we're going to dig into what that meal looks like from Luke 22. And, and as we do, we're going to look at the preparations that took place, the revelations that, that transpired during the midst of the meal, and ultimately a commemoration of the fulfillment of that meal. Well, we begin with the preparations that was taking place before, the act, before they actually sat down for the meal. There was two kinds of preparation going on. First of all, there was preparation for a crime. There was some murderous resolve, you know, that was taking place uh, in the minds of the religious leaders of, of that day. The ruling leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, they all had by this time hardened their hearts, solidified their hearts against Jesus. And they had this deadly determination. They wanted him eliminated, gone, done away with because he was causing problems in their life. So if we back up a little bit to Luke 19, we see that taking place. This is Luke 19, verse 47. Every day he, Jesus, was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So fast forward now to Luke 22. And there, verse 1, it says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now the prospect of all of these people gathering together in Jerusalem, thousands and some scholars say hundreds of thousands of people would have been there, that would have made these religious leaders a little nervous. Because they knew if they got rid of Jesus in the midst of the crowd, there would be an uproar. There would be a, an uh, uprising. So history's greatest crime is about to go down in the midst of Israel's holiest festival. And Satan, who's the enemy of our souls, had an idea that he knew they would bite on. So there's this murderous resolve, but also a murderous contract is about to be made. So look at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Now they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now for a long time now, they wanted, like I said, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to find a way to arrest him and get him out of the way, but they haven't, hadn't been able to work out a safe plan in order to do that. Now enter Judas, and their problem is solved. Because he guaranteed to deliver Jesus privately, no uproar. They, didn't, they could avoid this messianic uprising. And now they had a mole. They had a spy and traitor on the inside that was going to take care of the issue for him. Now there's a lot of, if you read commentaries or read scholars, there's a lot of debate on why Judas would betray Jesus. 
Well, if we look at the Gospel of John, John tells us that Judas was a thief, that he would help himself to the money bag. So money was probably a factor, probably played a part. Um, He was given, we know, 30 pieces of silver to betray him, which wasn't a large amount. That was kind of the common price for a slave in that day. But there's probably more going on in Judas's mind and heart. Maybe he wanted Jesus to be that political savior. Maybe he wanted Jesus to kind of instill and, and cause that uprising to overthrow Rome. And maybe he was thinking that if he would betray Jesus, he would just set that in motion and expedite the process a little bit. So that, that could be part of his motive. Um, maybe he just wanted to fan it into flame, kind of get things going. And maybe if Jesus instituted a political kingdom, then Judas might be able to kind of hold an office, be a cabinet member, as it were, have a position of power. Now, we can only speculate why Judas did it, but we do know that was part of God's plan because Jesus didn't stop it, even though he could have. So the preparations going on that day were there was preparations for a crime, first off. But then we, as we read on, we see that there's preparations for a celebration. A celebration of their past, which was centered in and around this Passover meal. So we pick up in verse 7 of Luke 22. <clears throat> then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. And he he replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. It's almost like this is prearranged with some secret signs and secret codes and stuff because men did not carry water jars in that day. So for them to encounter a man carrying a water jar, they would have been like, oh, he's the guy that Jesus wants us to talk to. And then they begin just to go through the the required things, the required process to celebrate the Passover. And there was detailed regulations on how to do so. So Peter and John would go and purchase the approved lamb and take it to the temple to be sacrificed. Now, you couldn't just go buy any lamb. You couldn't get a discount, you know, with a one-eyed, three-legged lamb. It had to, be, uh, had to be a perfect lamb. Everything intact, no blemishes, all the limb, all the eyes. It's only that kind of lamb that could be sacrificed. And then on the day of unleavened bread, at 3 p.m., the sacrifices begin. And people would line up in the temple to have this done. They themselves would, would kill the lamb, and the priest would catch the blood of the lamb and splash it on the altar. Now remember, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. Thousands of lambs are being sacrificed. That's a lot of blood. 
That's a lot of blood being splashed around. And, and you, you can just imagine the picture. Imagine the smell of what was going on and all the blood everywhere. And then the slain lamb would be put over the shoulder of, of the owner and taken to their home and then roasted on a spit made out of pomegranate wood. And then the meal itself would begin, and, and again, it was a set a menu, a set order on how to eat it, because each item on the food list celebrated some part of their past history. And the host's duty was then to interpret each of these food items and talk about the significance and why they, why they would eat it. So on the menu would, would be served things like bitter herbs, and the bitter herbs would remind the Israelites of their bitter slavery in Egypt. Then they would have stewed fruit, and by its color and consistency, it, it would uh, picture and remind them of the misery of making bricks for Pharaoh as slaves. And then they would have the roasted lamb, and that reflected back to that tenth and final plague right before the Exodus, where's the death of the firstborn. And as I mentioned, the lamb's blood was applied to the door frames. And in the part of their ceremony here as they celebrate the Passover, lamb's blood was a central part of it. Because as the priest would splash them on the altar, again, it was symbolic of God's forgiveness and passing over and forgiving their sins. And their eating of the lamb within, the, within their home would bring them back in their minds to that time when God's power was on display. When he brought them out of slavery. When he ushered in their salvation and created for them their own nation, their own people. So everything about this meal was symbolic. Nothing was random. It was everything pictured God acting in their history. So everything is, is now ready. The meal is gathered, and now comes some interesting conversations. You know, what, whenever we have like major celebrations at, at our home, um, conversations are always centered around the table, aren't they? So, sometimes, you know, they're fun. Sometimes they're, you, you know, you talk about the food that you're eating just like they would have done at that Passover. Or a lot of times you're just telling stories and they would begin like, oh, remember the time when? And then you'd go on to some, recount some escapade. You know, some of our conversations are random, some go deep, and some stick in our memories for years to come. Well, here the conversation turned to some life-changing revelations. And these revelations, in this conversation, Jesus, first of all, he revealed his love for the disciples and for people. So we pick up in verse 14 of Luke 22. It says, when the hour came, in other words, when that prescribed time came to have the meal, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus revealed his love for the disciples because he longed for this special time to be with them. 
this special time alone with his disciples because he knew at this point that the time was short, that this would be his last Passover with the disciples. So he was eager to teach them the truth behind this meal eager to teach them what this meal really was all about, the significance of it, which Jesus would transform forever. Was what, once was now, what once was about the historical exodus and Passover now takes on new meaning. And it becomes a visual parable of who Jesus was and what he was about to do. So he takes it out of the past and right down to the present. Because Jesus was about to accomplish this greater exodus on the cross. He's about to purchase the redemption for the sins of the world. And he enters the world as the Lamb of God, ready to shed his blood for all of humanity as the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. And at this meal, Jesus was focused not only on the past, but he's focused on the future, beyond the upcoming suffering, beyond his whipping and, and crucifixion. He's looking beyond that and to the upcoming glory. He's looking beyond the cross and to the crown. He's looking beyond the meal and to his role as Messiah. All of this revealed his love for humanity. Well, in this conversation, Jesus also revealed their hearts that were with them there that evening. In verse 21 of Luke 22, it says this, Jesus goes on to say, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays me. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then a dispute arose among them as to which which of them would be considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So he reveals the heart of a traitor right in their midst, in the middle of this intimate dinner, in the middle of Jesus revealing who he was. He says, There is someone who's going to betray me at this meal. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't say who it was. I mean, there's only 12 sitting around the table, and he didn't say the name, and I think he, he kept it anonymous for the sake of Judas. Possibly because he wanted to give him like one more chance to repent and, and turn away from this plan. Now Jesus had already kissed Jesus. We read in the other Gospels that he'd already washed his feet. He's given Judas like this one more opportunity. You know, it's not too late. But maybe he also wanted to protect him from the other disciples. But whatever the reason, whatever, why he didn't say it, Jesus also knew that betrayal was a part of God's plan. So he let it play out. 
Jesus also reveals the heart of jealousy amongst the other disciples because he just said one's going to betray him. So, the, so this natural debate begins, well, if that's the betrayal, who's the greatest? Who's going to be greatest, you know? And it says true greatness is to follow my example. And I was here as one who served you. I washed your feet. He's a servant to others, and a servant doesn't argue on who's greatest because a servant understands and knows the position. And we as disciples today are called to take up that same position as servant. So there's a heart of a, of a betrayer, there, there's a heart, hearts of jealousy, and there's also a heart of denial present at that dinner table. Because we read on in verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift you, all of you, as wheat. Not just Simon, but all of you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. I love this part because Satan has to ask permission of Jesus to sift all the disciples, not just Peter alone. And it's almost like Satan is like, uh, Jesus, would, would you be okay with me messing with your disciples one last time? Would you be okay if I tested them to see who was true and who was not? Satan wanted to find out who the real disciples were, you know, and, and I love that visual of sifting flour because sifting removes the lumps and it removes the impurities. And Satan, I think, was saying, I want to find out who is true and who is impure in their motives. And Jesus allows Satan to do that. I mean, it's a brutal sifting of hearts that's taken place. And the disciples are probably thinking, man, things are heading south really fast. But, but before we get too judgmental on these disciples, before we look at them and point fingers on, oh, the betrayal and the hearts of jealousy and the denial, I think as we look at those sitting around the table and the conversations taking place, we can see ourselves at that table. Sometimes we, we struggle with jealousy and we're like, we, I want to be like that person. Or I want to be, you know, a few steps above that person. We see ourselves as, you know, I'd like to be in charge. Or are we stepping into the role of servant that Jesus calls us to? Or do we, we, do we have a heart of denial like Peter? When confronted, say, at our workplace, when confronted about our faith, when confronted about whether we follow Jesus or not, you know, what's our response? Do we kind of hem and haw and, and mumble? It's like, well, yeah, you know, kind of, sort of. Or do we stand up and say, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. I believe in who he is and what he teaches. I believe in his word. You know, in, in the midst of, of all of this, Jesus does something amazing. He takes this ancient Jewish ritual of Passover and he brings it right down to the present. 
He brings it right down to himself with him sitting before the disciples. And even further, he brings it right down to us today, right here at Journey every single Sunday. Because in the midst of that meal, there's a shift in direction. And by that I mean it's no longer about the past. It's no longer just about the exodus. Jesus points it forward to the future and ultimately right to us here in Wayne. In verse 17, he says this, After taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus used these simple items, these simple things to convey some profound truths. Basic elements of, this, of a basic Jewish meal. Bread and a cup. And with the bread, he says, this is my body. Re representing his body. He's not saying it's his literal body, but just speaking figuratively, this is a symbol of my body, which I am going to give for you on the cross for your sins. And then he takes this cup, which represents his, his blood, and he says, this cup is a new covenant. It's my blood as the Lamb of God. And he intentionally, he's contrasting the, the work of the old covenant. Now he's bringing in the new. That old covenant, like I said, was launched in a sea of blood. And now Jesus is saying, my blood is bringing in something new. Now he, his blood is the Lamb of God. And that points us right forward to right here and now. You know, we, we take a meal every Sunday called communion. And that communion grounds us right here in the present. It's part of the new covenant that Jesus ushered in for us. A new covenant that's totally dependent on Him, not dependent on whether we keep the rituals and practices because He has done it all. Our salvation rests on Him. And you know what? Jesus says His blood is poured out for you. His death is for you. It's not just for the person around you. It's not just for somebody else. He died for you. See, Jesus fulfills the intent and meaning of the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. So the need for that yearly and repeated sacrifice is over. There's no more Passover needed on God's calendar. Something far more radical than the old covenant was needed. A spiritual heart operation was needed. A new heart was needed. And that idea of, of a new covenant was prophesied way back in the Old Testament by a prophet named Jeremiah. And as Jeremiah prophesied, he pointed forward to Jesus and what he can do and does for us. Here's how Jeremiah put it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. You know, the very first ever medical heart transplant took place 56 years ago. It was done by a doctor named Christian Bernard in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he performed the heart transplant on another physician named Philip Blayberg. And afterwards, uh, Bernard, they're visiting, and, and Bernard asked his patient, Dr. Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? And being a physician, he's like, yeah, I'd love to see it. So he went, he went to the cupboard and he took down the glass jar of his old heart soaking and, and sitting there in formaldehyde. And he handed the heart to Dr. Blayberg. And for a moment, as the story is told, he just kind of stood there in silence because he was the first man in history to hold his own heart in his hands. And finally they spoke and what followed was a 10-minute dialogue back and forth with a lot of technical questions and medical jargon. And, and finally he took one last look at his old heart, handed it back and said, so that's my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He gave it back, turned away, and walked away forever. And journey, that in, is in essence what Christ does for us. He gives us a new spiritual heart. The old is gone. The new is now here. I'm going to invite the praise team back up this morning. And Jesus, as our Lamb of God, He brings in a new covenant. He brings in a new relationship with not rules. It's based on relationship. He gives us a new heart. He offers us new beginnings, and He offers us a new life. Now, I can't see your heart in a jar. I can't take it off itself and examine it, but God can. Maybe your heart is hardened. Maybe your heart is closed off to Jesus. If so, let Jesus do a little transplant work today. Or maybe you've been walking around with a new heart, but you're hanging on to your old one. Walking around saying, yeah, I still like a little bit of that old stuff with me. If that's you, then just put the old down, turn away from it, and walk away. In just a few minutes, we're going to have the privilege to celebrate communion. That new form of Passover as we take the Lord's Supper together. So let's use this next song that we sing as a time of worship to help us prepare. Let's stand together as we sing.